are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast, where I discuss writing specifically today, Full House, an essay by David Sedaris in his book, Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim. Yes, this weekend, I had a blast, a writer's blast. Yesterday was Saturday. I was not able to record the podcast yesterday because I was in good old ATL chatting it up with our friend Zev Good, the illustrious and talented Zev Good. I went to his restaurant with my wife and he sat with us and talked to us about all manner of things. We discussed his upcoming novel, The Language of Birds, which I got to beta read. I was just in awe of that book. So in awe that, you know, I've had this online friendship with Zev for almost four years now, maybe longer. I think we started talking in late 2019, which is quite a long friendship for me. Aside from that, meeting him in person for the first time after all this time was really something for me. I was giddy about it all week. And it's starstruck. I I didn't know what to say around him. I finally opened up a little bit, but, you know, I really got tongue-tied when he asked me about my book, which, by the way, now has a title and a cover. I'll get more into that after this. For those of you who are unaware, if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, I spent about the first 10 minutes talking, and then we'll get into the essay. But... I've been working on a book that I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. I can only say so much about Language of Birds, but it's a fantastic novel. He's querying it to agents, which good for him. He's been working with a very good professional editor, not someone that he met off Twitter, an actual professional editor who does this for a living. That is uh, really something. Zev has connections, and you know we talked about the writing community and how it's it's something that I divorced myself from when I quit Twitter, but I always had the joke excommunicated from the writing community in my bio, and occasionally people would ask me about it. Early on, I had the troll hashtag real writers, and occasionally people would get upset about that because that's exactly what I wanted to happen. <laughs> and he told me that now in his social media bio, he has former indie author. It's not common to find an author that wants to talk shop with you. Now, we didn't get down into the nitty-gritty because my head has been about editing lately. My current manuscript is in the third draft. And for those of you who are unaware, every time I write a novel, the process is different. And this is novel number six. So with Greenskin, which when I wrote, when I started writing this novel, I was like, I can't top Greenskin in terms of what I was trying to accomplish with that novel. And reading Demise of the Trinity on the podcast made me realize, wow, there is a lot of noir and pulp influence here, even though I didn't really grow up paying attention to that. I didn't read a lot of that, didn't watch a lot of that, but I am a huge Batman fan and I am a huge Breaking Bad fan. And so that was a tremendous influence on Demise. 
And I'm also kind of pondering whether or not for, because we are coming up on four years of this podcast and I celebrated the 200th episode by reading my first novel in its entirety. What about my second novel? I don't know if anyone would want to listen to me read and commentate on Price of the Trinity, but it is the companion novel to Demise. A lot of people thought it was a sequel. It's not a sequel. It's not a prequel either. It's a a companion novel. But aside from that, the book is entitled... An Eye for the Peculiar. I have book art completed. I am accomplishing what I want to do with this novel. So in that sense, it's a success. But I'm also being very meticulous because, for one thing, the writing process for Greenskin went by very, very quickly. I wrote the first draft in about a month. I went through the second draft in about two weeks, did some edits here and there. And even after it was published, when I was reading it on the podcast, I was noticing things that I wanted to, you know, update. So I changed some things there. So there are a few people out there with paperbacks that have some errors in them. That that's, It happens, you know, it always, it happens to professionally published authors all the time. That's what the other editions are for. If books came out perfect the first time, there wouldn't be second, third, fourth, fifth editions. But I want to get this one right. You know, I'm tired of eventually coming around to something on the podcast and reading it out loud. I've been reading this one out loud to myself a lot. but And just seeing things and I'm like, well, that's weird. And, you know, changing them and having to go through the whole rigmarole of uploading it to KDP and all that shit. I don't want to have to do that again. I didn't have to do it with Surviving New America or Birch. I don't think I've changed anything about, or Price of the Trinity for that matter. I don't think I've changed anything about those books. Well, I think I did with Birch, to be honest, if I'm recalling correctly. But with this one, I'm being meticulous. I've been using Control-F a lot to find those common weak words like would, have, the to-be verbs, all that shit. Um, I haven't been as meticulous about the dialogue because that's the stuff that, from my perspective, is best when it's off the top of your head because it's more natural that way. It's more conversational. You don't want things to be overthought when it comes to your dialogue. The dialogue should be distinct from your prose, the paragraphs and whatnot. That's stuff that I haven't done I think since my first two novels, you know, with Surviving New America, I didn't worry about things like that. And my favorite authors don't seem to worry about things like that. Most authors don't give a shit about whether or not they're using weak verbs here and there, you know. The English major in me is coming out, and I I can't help but want to make it better. When we talk about an author like David Zadaris... He rewrites and edits these essays like crazy, and even after he publishes them, he thinks about things that he would have liked to have done differently. So the process never really ends, but I'm trying to get it as complete as possible, which is frustrating, but also I can't will myself to just let it go. I have to do this. It's not fun. The writing part 
you know, that first draft, maybe the second draft is fun. But when you have to get down in the nitty gritty and second guess everything, my God, imposter syndrome. I have never been less confident than I am with writing my sixth novel. And I I don't know why. I, I think I'm worried about how my peers will perceive it, how they'll perceive me. There's family drama in there that isn't present in my other book. So if any anyone that I'm related to reads this, I don't know how I'm going to answer their questions, if they have any at all. Thankfully, I don't speak to most of my family. For The only person that I'm related to that I speak to on a regular basis is my mother. And you can tell that I love my mom because <laughs> she's in the book, but she's not in the book. She's dead. <laughs> I killed her off before the book even began. She dies in terms of timeline in 2020, and the book begins in 2025. So um, everything that's said about her is beyond the grave. But I was fortunate to have one good parent. Now, we're talking about David Sedaris today, and this is a guy who may not have had very good parents, but at the same time, he loved them especially his mother. He lived to make his mother laugh. So that's why he even has a career. You know, if he didn't have that kind of upbringing, we wouldn't be hooked on his stories of his childhood and growing up. And, you know, I love his stories that aren't about his family as well, but that seems to be what people keep coming back from and what he keeps going back to. So Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim is one of the underdogs of his bibliography because is there a... I'm looking through the front cover of this book trying to see if his other books are... Yeah, up until the publication of this one. Barrel Fever. We've not read anything from that book, and I don't think we ever will because half of it, or maybe more than half of it, is fiction, and it's just random made-up bullshit. It's not its not even real stories, I don't think. Naked is his first fully-fledged classic David Sedaris book. We've read Naked. I taught essays from Naked in my English 1101 course. Me Talk Pretty One Day is the one that people keep coming back to. It's fantastic. When You're Engulfed in Flames was my first one. I thought Calypso, when I first read it, was his best work yet. And then Happy Go Lucky came out. I was like, oh man, that's great too. But Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim is not one that I've come back to a lot. So I pulled out this book because we've only read two essays from it before on the podcast. And it's been a while since we read Sedaris. And so... We're just going to go into Full House and see how we feel about it. We may read more than one essay in this podcast, but I don't know. My parents were not the type of people who went to bed at a regular hour. Sleep overtook them, but neither the time nor the idea of a mattress seemed very important. My father favored a chair in the basement, but my mother was apt to lie down anywhere waking with carpet burns on her face or the pattern of the sofa embossed into the soft flesh of her upper arms. It was sort of embarrassing. She might sleep for eight hours a day, but they were never consecutive hours and they involved no separate outfit. For Christmas, we would give her nightgowns, hoping she 
might take the hint. Therefore, bedtime, we'd say, and she'd look at us strangely as if, like the moment of one's death, the occasion of sleep was too incalculable to involve any real preparation. The upside to being raised by what were essentially a pair of house cats was that we never had any enforced bedtime. At 2 a.m. on a school night, my mother would not say go to sleep, but rather, shouldn't you be tired? It wasn't a command, but a sincere question, the answer provoking little more than a shrug. Suit yourself, she'd say, pouring what was likely to be her 13th or 42nd cup of coffee. I'm not sleepy either. Don't know why, but I'm not. When I was growing up, my mother made me go to bed with her. Uh, when she would go to bed, which was at 9 o'clock, because she got up at 5. I didn't get up at 5. Sometimes I did, because I woke up with her sometimes. But most of the time, I would sit in bed in the dark and not really know what to do with myself, because at 9 o'clock, I was not tired. It would take me usually two hours to finally fall asleep. And then when 7 o'clock rolled around and she'd get me up, I wouldn't want to get up because I was still tired. This was a vicious cycle throughout most of my early childhood because on weekends, I got to stay up until 10. Ooh, watching more TV and whatnot. And then sometimes eating at that late hour. Things like Stouffer's macaroni and cheese after dinner. You know how it goes. But I finally got to stay up later when I got older because I we moved to this house that I currently live in and she moved out of in 2011. And I'm speaking to you in the room that used to be my bedroom that's currently my office and guitar room. And I had a TV of my own. I had my big old bed, and this was my space. And so without her around to tell me, you have to go to bed at this time, sometimes I would stay up kind of late. It was considered real late if you stayed up until 1 o'clock on a school night, but I didn't do that, I don't think, ever unless I couldn't get to sleep. Uh, I would stay up until, you know, 12 on Sunday sometimes because I wanted to watch Aqua Teen Hunger Force. But on weekdays, I tried to go to sleep around 10. We were the family that never shut down. The family whose TV was so hot we needed an oven mitt in order to change the the channel. Every night was basically a slumber party. But when the real thing came along, my sisters and I failed to show much of an interest. But we get to stay up as late as we want, the host would say. And... The first one I attended was held by a neighbor named Walt Winters. Like me, Walt was in the sixth grade. Unlike me, he was gregarious and athletic, which meant basically that we had absolutely nothing in common. But why would he include me, I asked my mother. I hardly know the guy. I want to stop here and talk about this shift. And I talked about it to my students when I taught his other essays like I Like Guys. David Sedaris starts every essay with about a paragraph or two that seems to have absolutely nothing to do with what else he's talking about. And then there's like a third act at the, at the end. And sometimes he'll come back to his original point.
But here we have that shift where he's talking about his neighbor, Walt Winters. I tried my best to back out, but then my father got wind of it, and that option was closed. He often passed Walt playing football on the street and saw in the boy a younger version of himself. He may not be the best player in the world, but he and his friends, they're a good group. I'm reading this shit right here. I don't mean to call it shit. It's not shit, but this is how I talk. That option was closed. I I would sit and look at that sentence for about an hour wondering how I would, instead of saying was closed, how I would formulate it differently so I could avoid saying was and closed in the past tense. Fine, I say. Then you go to sleep with them. I could not tell my father that boys made me anxious, and so I invented individual reasons to dislike them. The hope was that I might seem discerning rather than frightened, but instead I came off sounding like a prude. You're expecting me to spend the night with someone who curses, someone who actually throws rocks at cats? You're damned right I am, my father said. Now get the hell out over there. Aside from myself, there were three other guests at Walt's slumber party. None of them were particularly popular. They weren't good-looking enough for that. But each could hold his own at a playing field and in a discussion about cars. The talk started the moment I walked through the door, and while pretending to listen, I wished that I could have been more honest. What is the actual point of football, I wanted to ask? Is a V8 engine related in any way to the juice? I would have sounded like a foreign exchange student, but the answers might have given me some sort of a foundation. As it was, they may as well have been talking backward. I am stumbling right now mentally because since I'm in edit mode, and we had this issue last week when I was reading Great Gatsby with my wife, I would have sounded like a foreign exchange student. But the answers might have given me some sort of foundation. As it was, they may as well have been talking backward. I mean, this is stuff that it's fine reading it out loud. And Dave Zedaris knows what he's doing. However, this is the stuff that English professors, since I'm in the editing frame of mind right now, English professors would be marking the fuck out of right now. There were four styles of houses on our street, and while Walt's was different from my own, I was familiar with the layout. The slumber party took place in what the Methodists called a family room. The Catholics used as an extra bedroom, and the neighborhood's only Jews had turned into a combination dark room and fallout shelter. Walt's family was Methodist, and so the room's focal point was a large black-and-white television. Family photos hung hung on the wall alongside pictures of the various athletes Mr. Winters had successfully pestered for autographs. I admired them to the best of my ability, but was more interested in the wedding portrait displayed above the sofa. Arm in arm with her uniformed husband, Walt's mother looked deliriously, almost frighteningly happy. The bulging eyes and fierce gummy smile. It was an expression bordering on hysteria, and the intervening years had done nothing to dampen it. Can we take a moment and talk about this whole wedding portrait thing? So, this morning, 
I woke up for eight o'clock. I had a dream and it was one of those dreams where you're in the present time, but you have flashbacks to the past. And I woke up wondering if the memories that I were called in the dream were real. And of course they were not, but there was this girl that I went to high school with. I have not seen her since we graduated. I don't even remember seeing her the week of graduation. However, I thought she was pretty, of course. She was a developing young woman, and I was a developing young boy. And, well, I haven't really thought about her much since high school. It's been almost 14 years. We haven't even had our 10-year anniversary because 2020 happened. I graduated in 2010. So, it's odd that I would have a dream about her at all, but to have a flashback about us... Okay, so I've talked about this before on the podcast. There was another young woman that I had a relationship with in 2015. We knew each other in high school, reconnected. It was about a month long. The first two weeks were great. The second two weeks were hell, and... I wrote about her for a year after that because, you know, that's just what I did. But I, in this dream, shortly after that relationship that actually happened, I reconnected with another girl from high school. And she also lived in Athens, Georgia. She was a student at UGA. And I, the, the relationship in a nutshell, was essentially we dated a few times, like three times, got hot and heavy, as you do when you're both toxic young people. And then she freaked out. I seem to recall in the dream her sitting in the passenger seat of my truck. This is how you know it's old. I don't have that truck anymore. And her crying, and not over me, about some other shit going on in her life. And then ghosting me and so I woke up and I'm like I seem to recall her being married around that time and so I tried finding her on Facebook just to see like what is she up to these days and she's nowhere to be found I mean nowhere I tried looking on Instagram as well nothing it's like she never existed And I tried looking up her parents just because I was going to go that extra creepy mile. And they weren't on there either. Her husband wasn't on there. Her brother wasn't on there. And I'm like, what the hell happened with this woman? And in the process of doing all this, if you spend enough time on Facebook, people, they show their highlight reels from their life on Facebook. That's what Facebook is for these days. Not the same highlight reel you'd see on Instagram, but very glamorized stuff like their wedding photos. So I saw a bunch of wedding photos just browsing through different profiles this morning. And it's really boring. They're all the same. They're all like, it's always engagement photos and shit like that, but also like actual wedding photos. More and more people get married outside And they all have that same, you know, gray or brown filter on it. It's just all very boring and samey. And I'm like, 
you know, I, I would, I had my wedding photo, which I didn't have a proper wedding, but I had my wife and I married as my profile picture for a while. And occasionally like on our anniversary or something, I'd change it back to that. But like my wife and I are different people from then. We've been married going on at seven or eight years. We got married in 2017. Our wedding anniversary is coming up. We just gave each other wedding anniversary gifts. And this whole kind of romanization of your wedding day, that's great and all, but what about the rest of your fucking life? Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just cynical, but what is she on? My mother would whisper whenever we passed Mrs. Winters, waving gaily from her front yard. I thought she was being too hard on her, but after 10 minutes in the woman's house, I understood exactly what my mother was talking about. Pizza's here, she chimed when the delivery man came to the door. Oh, boys, how about some piping hot pizza? That sounds really good right now. I need to text my wife. I thought it was funny that anyone would use the words piping hot, but it wasn't the kind of thing I felt I could actually laugh at. Neither could I laugh at Mr. Winter's pathetic imitation of an Italian waiter. Mamma mia, who would want another slice of the pizza? I had the idea that adults were supposed to make themselves scarce at slumber parties, but Walt's parents were all over the place, initiating games, offering snacks and refills. They sound like good parents. When the midnight horror movie came on, Walt's mother crept into the bathroom leaving a ketchup-spattered knife beside the sink. An hour passed, and when none of us had yet discovered it, she started dropping little hints. Doesn't anybody want to wash their hands? <laughs> she asked. Well, whoever is closest to the door, go check to see if I left fresh towels in the bathroom. <laughs> you just wanted to cry for people like her. Listen, these are good parents, man. They're attentive. They are making sure that their guests feel welcome and are taken care of. I know it can feel overbearing, especially when you've been in a situation where your parents are very hands-off, but this is not a bad thing. As corny as they were, I was sorry when the movie ended and Mr. and Mrs. Winter stood to leave. It was only 2 a.m., but clearly they were done in. Listen, I don't fucking care what my kids do if they have a slumber party at my house. I don't have kids. But I'm not staying up until 2 fucking a.m. for them. Uh Uh-uh. I'm in bed even on weekends, usually before 12 o'clock. Now, there are many weekdays where I'm in bed before 11 o'clock. But on weekends, I might stay up a little later and watch more TikToks. I like to watch Carrie Brant Hoover on Fridays especially because he has Friday night frozen pizza talk. And it's... It's entrancing to watch this man who lives in a motel room make pizzas in his... And it's not fancy pizza. It's usually stuff like Tombstone, which Tombstone fucking slaps. But it's... Last week, he... Well, this past Friday, he made a Michelina pizza. Michelina is probably the lowest common denominator the lowest quality thing you can buy from a grocery store that's pre-prepared because it's like two bucks. I just don't know how you boys can do it, Walt's mother said, yawning into the sleeve of her bathrobe. I haven't been up this late since Lauren came into the world. Lauren was Walt's sister, who was born prematurely and lived for less than two days. 
that's fucking dark. This had happened before the winter resses. I have no, the winters moved onto our street, but it wasn't any kind of secret. And you weren't supposed to flinch upon hearing the girl's name. The baby had died too soon to pose for photographs, but still she was regarded as a full-fledged member of the family. Oh, that is so fucking weird. She had a Christmas stocking the size of a mitten, and they even threw her an annual birthday party, a fact that my mother found especially creepy. Let's hope they don't invite us, she said. I mean, Jesus, how do you shop for a dead baby? <laughs> Listen, my grandmother had five kids, but now and then, Tanya gets brought up. Like, my grandmother named her sixth unborn child, which is incredibly sad. And somehow I even know the circumstances of why she was conceived and why she was born stillborn, you know? Can you say born stillborn? Or is it just she was stillborn? Who knows? I guess it was the fear of another premature birth that kept Mrs. Winters from trying again, which was sad as you got the sense that she really wanted a lively household. You got the sense that she had an idea of a lively household and that the slumber party and the ketchup-covered knife were all part of that idea. While in her presence, we played along, but once she said goodnight, I understood that all bets were off. She and her husband lumbered up the stairs, and when Walt felt certain... That they were asleep, he pounced on Dale Gummerson, shouting, Titty Twister! Brad Clancy joined in, and when they finished, Dale raised his shirt, revealing nipples as crimped and ruddy as the pepperoni slices littering the forsaken pizza box. Oh my god, I said, realizing too late that this made me sound like a girl. The appropriate response was to laugh at Dale's misfortune, not to flutter your hands in front of your face, screeching, what have they done to your poor nipples? Shouldn't we put some ice on them? <laughs> oh my god. Walt picked up on this immediately. Did you just say you wanted to put ice on Dale's nipples? Kids are fucking clever and cruel. Oh my god. Well, not me personally, I said. I mean, you know, generally, as a group. Or Dale could do it himself if he felt like it. Walt's eyes wandered from my face to my chest, and then the entire slumber party was upon me. Dale had not yet regained the full use of his arms, and so we sat on my legs while Brad and Scott Marlborough pinned me to the ground. My shirt was raised, a hand was clamped over my mouth, and Walt latched onto my nipples, twisting them back and forth as if they were a set of particularly stubborn toggle bolts. Now, who needs some ice, he said. Now, who thinks he's the goddamn school nurse? I once felt sorry for Walt. But now, my eyes watered in pain. I understood that little Lauren was smart to have cut out early. <laughs> Jesus. Um, why didn't he leave the moment he saw this happen? If I saw someone else getting their nipples twisted, I would assume that I was next and I would get up and leave. Okay, so trauma time. I, I may have already talked about this on the podcast, but I was in Louisiana visiting my dad for the summer. And I had uh, my half-sister and my stepsister and two stepbrothers. And I was just sitting in the playroom 
watching TV. I didn't want to be in there, but I had been told to go in there for whatever reason. My dad wanted to watch something. I don't know. I was 13 or 12 at the time. Who cares? And I guess my half-sister Carrie was being too loud or something. Or maybe she and my stepbrother Jonathan were arguing over something. But my dad had a habit of threatening to spank you, even if you were just in the room. I guess he expected you to stop something that was happening. But I hadn't been spanked in a long time. And he comes into the room, picks up Jonathan, hits him, and then picks up Carrie Ann and hits her on the ass so hard that her legs fly up in the air along with the lower half of her torso. And it hurt her so bad that you didn't even hear her cry at first. Her face just contorted and tears started coming out. And I saw this. My heart was in my stomach and I was thinking, I'm next. Thankfully, maybe I was too I mean, I wasn't doing anything, so he was being fair in that regard, I guess. But, uh, you know, that kind of fear, I if I'd gotten up to run, I probably would gotten, I probably would have gotten spanked. By the way, my dad has no recollection of that happening. Anyway, I asked, <laughs> what the fuck, where was I? I was too busy talking about, uh, childhood trauma. I lowered myself to the floor and reached for a magazine, trying my best to act casual. I was not really much for games, so if it's okay with you, I think I'll just watch. Watch hell, Walt said. This is strip poker. What kind of a homo wants to sit around and watch four guys get naked? The logic of this was lost on me. Well, won't we all sort of be watching? Looking, maybe, but not watching, Walt said. There's a big difference. I asked what the difference was, but nobody answered. Then Walt made a twisting motion with his fingers, and I took my place at the table, praying for a gas leak or an electrical fire. Anything to save me from the catastrophe of strip poker. To the rest of the group, a naked boy was like a lamp or a bath mat, something so familiar and uninteresting that it faded into the background, but for me it was different. A naked boy was what I desired more than anything on earth. And when you were both watching and desiring, things came up. One thing in particular that was bound to stand up and ruin your life forever. I hate to tell you, I said, but it's against my religion to play poker. Yeah, right, Walt said. What are you, Baptist? Greek Orthodox. Well, that's a load of crap because the Greeks invented cards, Walt said. Actually, it was the Egyptians. This from Scott, who was quickly identifying himself as the smart one. Greeks, Egyptians, they're all the same thing, Walt said. Anyway, what your poobah doesn't know won't hurt him, so shut the hell up and play. He dealt the cards, and I looked from face to face, exaggerating flaws and reminding myself that these boys did not like me. The hope was that I might crush any surviving atom of attraction. But as has been the case for my entire life, the more someone dislikes me, the more attractive he becomes. Oh my God, this is relatable. The key was to stall, to argue every hand until the sun came up and Mrs. Winter saved me with whatever cheerful monstrosity she'd planned for breakfast. 
On the off chance that stalling would not work, I stepped into the bathroom and checked to make sure I was wearing clean underwear. A boner would be a horrible beyond belief, but a boner combined with a skid mark meant that I should take the ketchup-smeared knife and just kill myself before it was too late. Jesus. What? Are you launching a sub in there? Walt shouted. Come on, we're waiting. Usually, when I was forced to complete, it was my tactic to simply give up. To try in any way was to announce your ambition, which only made you more vulnerable. The person who wanted to win but failed was a loser, while the person who didn't really care was just a weirdo, a title I'd learned to live with. Here, though, surrender was not an option. I had to win at a game I knew nothing about, and that seemed hopeless until I realized we were all on equal footing. Not even Scott had the slightest idea what he was doing, and by feigning an air of expertise, I could manipulate things in my favor. A joker and a queen is much better than the four and five of spades, I said, defending my hand against Brad Clancy's. But you have a joker and a three of diamonds. But the joker makes it a queen. I thought you said poker was against your religion. Well, that doesn't mean I don't understand it. Greeks invented cards, remember? They're in my blood. At the start of the game, the sunburst, the starburst clock had read 3.30. An hour later, I was missing one shoe. Scott and Brad had lost their shirts, and both Walt and Dale were down to their underwear. If this was what winning felt like, I wondered why I hadn't tried it before. Confidently in the lead, I invented little reason... Little reasons for the undressed to get up and move about the room. Hey, Walt, did you hear that? It sounded like footsteps up in the kitchen. I didn't hear anything. Why don't you go to the stairway and check? We don't want any surprises. His underwear was all bunchy in the back, saggy like a diaper, but his legs were meaty and satisfying to look at. Jesus Christ. Dale, would you make sure those curtains are closed? He crossed the room and I ate him alive with my eyes, confident that no one would accuse me of staring. Things might have been different if were I in last place, but as the winner, it was my right to make sure that things were done properly. There's an open space down by the baseboard. Bend over and close it, will you? Hit. Oh my God. See, I can't even get into it. I really can't, can I? I, I, I just can't. It took a while, but after explaining that a pair of kings was no match for two of hearts and three of spades, Walt surrendered his underpants and tossed them into a pile beside the TV set. Okay, now the rest of you can finish the game. But it is finished, Scott said. Oh no, Walt said. I'm not the only one getting naked. You guys have to keep playing. While you do what? Sit back and watch? I said, what kind of homo are you? Yeah, Dale said. Why don't we do something else? This game's boring and the rules are impossible. The others muttered in agreement, and when Walt con- <laughs> Jesus, and when Walt refused to back down, I gathered the deck and tamped it com- commandingly on the tabletop. The only solution is for us all to keep playing. How the hell do you expect me to do that? Walt said. In case you haven't noticed, there's nothing more for me to lose. Oh, I said, there's always more. Maybe if the weakest hand is already naked, we should make that person perform some kind of task. Nothing big. You know, a token kind of thing. A thing like what, Walt asked. I don't know. I guess we'll have to cross that bridge when we come to it. In retrospect, I probably went a little too far in ordering Scott to sit on my lap. 
But I'm naked, he said. Hey, I told him. I'm the one who's going to be suffering. I was just looking out for something easy. Would you rather run outside and touch the mailbox? The sun will be coming up in about 20 seconds. You want the whole neighborhood to see you? How long do I have to sit on you, he asked. I don't know, a minute or two, maybe five or seven. I moved onto the easy chair, wearily patted my knee as if this was a great sacrifice. Scott slid into place, and I considered our reflection in the darkened TV screen. Here I was, one naked guy on my lap and three others ready to do my bidding. It was the stuff of dreams until I remembered that they were not doing these things of their own accord. This was not their pleasure, but their punishment, and once it was over, they would make it a point to avoid me. Rumors would spread that I slipped something into their cokes, that I'd tried to French Brad Clancy, that I'd stolen $5 from Walt's pocket. Not even Mrs. Winters would wave at me, but all that would come later, in a different life. For now, I would savor this poor imitation of tenderness, mapping Scott's shoulders the small of his back as he shuddered beneath my winning hand. That is borderline creepy, but thank God this is a memory and not something that he did as an adult. I had one sleepover at my house growing up, and I never did it again until my girlfriend moved in with me, of course. But other than that, um, my first sleepover was at my friend Brandon's house. I slept over his house twice. And then I realized I didn't really like his dad all that much. So that didn't happen again. And then I stayed over at my friend Bobby's house once, and Bobby was always a jerk to me. And yet he would always ask me to come to his house. So, yeah, he was pretty much an only child. He had an older sister who was in college when we were in elementary school and he didn't really have anyone to play with in, in the neighborhood. So, you know, he, his only recourse was to have someone come over from school and it was usually either me or his friend Elijah. And more often than not, it was me. The sleepover that he had at my house was so poorly planned. Uh, I mean, his mother insisted coming over to, our house to look and uh, that's fine and dandy but what's funny is that my mother never once requested to enter their house but she wanted to come over and see how we lived and my mother didn't plan anything for us you know it was just going to be us playing I guess and then falling asleep and then taking him home the next day but that's not how it worked out Bobby talked to my mother into taking us to see Harry Potter, which was fun and fine and dandy, and my mother was annoyed, but she did it. And then he asked her to buy him a Sprite, so she gave him money to go get a Sprite. And by that time, I was through. You know, I was like, I don't want to have Bobby here anymore. I want my time back. And then... Uh, when time came for us to actually go to sleep, uh, he was being weird. So we were going to watch Shrek together, and he kept insisting that we turn it up louder. And I was like, my mother's asleep. We can't turn it up too loud. But then he was like, okay, I'll just go to sleep. And so I was going to stay up and watch Shrek, 
And then he kept insisting, just turn it down one notch. Just turn it down one notch. And then we ended up fighting. And then I went to my mother's bedroom and fell asleep. And the next morning, um, my mother made us sit on separate couches and just be quiet. I was in the fifth grade. at And at one point, my grandmother, who was always seemingly coming up with different things to scold me about, uh, decided to get onto me for not having more friends and not going over and playing with more kids at their houses. And I'm like, I don't like to do that. I've done it. And she's like, that's not healthy. You should be going over and playing with other kids. I'm like, I'd rather just stay home. And I'm, I'm the same way now really. But, but this was something that was brought up by my grandmother, not my mother. My mother was not, very patient when it came to me having after school hours social time. I was just telling my wife about this time today where um, I was invited to a pool party and after an hour she was ready to go. Now, keep in mind, the party wasn't over yet. And I was having fun being with all my buddies from the football team and going in and out of the hot tub and then going in the pool and then running around being a kid. And my mother was ready to go home. And so she, she told me that she wanted to go home and I said, uh-uh, I don't want to go home yet. And I jumped in the pool and started playing and then she was gone. I was like, where did she go? And you know, she was moving the car or something. And I went up to my football coach and I said, my mother left. And he's like, well, if she left you here, you can always come home with us. (laughs) And so I was like, okay. And then I jumped back in the pool. But when my, as soon as my mother showed back up, like two minutes later, I ran up to her and we left. That's the thing about kids is that I remember feeling very constricted by being a kid. That's why I wanted to grow up. I didn't want to have to answer to someone all the time. I, if I want to stay at a place for a while, I wanted to do that. If I wanted to talk to someone for a while, I wanted to be able to do that. And being a kid is being told no all the time, but being an adult is doing whatever you want. And the worst part of that is when you're a teenager because you feel like you're an adult because there was a time in history where you practically were an adult when you were a teenager. Cause that's when people started having kids because you died in your thirties. I'm in my thirties now and I'm feeling like I'm feeling that age very much so, but you know, all those hormones and things telling you to fuck and stuff like that. You know, I, you're always being told no. And I I mean, a lot of times by someone who knows better than you, and that's a good thing, but it is difficult to go through. And, you know, I, I do a lot of the same things I did when I was a teenager. I sit around and play video games when I want to. I write, I play guitar. That's what I do in my free time. And to bring it back to writing, I want to, 
actually pull up an Instagram post because this is a writing podcast and that Sedaris essay only held us over for so long. But uh, a friend of mine posted these things that social media etiquette. And if you're listening, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to agree with everything that you say here. The dues of social media etiquette for indie authors, essentially. Dues. Be kind. Be polite. Reciprocate and support each other. What does that mean exactly? If someone follows you, you don't want to follow them back. Pretend you didn't see it instead of a spam. Instead of spam liking their photos. Remember, the world doesn't revolve around you. <sighs> Don'ts. Follow to unfollow. Yeah, that's an annoying one. Ask someone for advice on how to grow your account, then ghost them. That's rude, sure. Ask for a free book for a review, then ghost the author. That's also very rude, and it's happened to me, sure. Call DM someone to review your book. If you aren't a mutual, it isn't free, and if you're a fellow indie author, you don't offer to review their book as well. See, that's the thing. Um, reviewing for review is bullshit. It really is. This whole indie author community thing is so transactional and it's kind of disgusting. Like, I don't want someone to read my book because there's an incentive for them. That is not helpful at all. Cold DM authors, you'll write a review for their books for some cash. That's never happened to me. Try to join an engagement post when you don't follow the host. I don't care about that. Don't leave mutuals on red unless you're busy, and please get back to them. I mean, that's kind of a common courtesy thing, but if I don't want to respond to your message, I'm not going to. And then the last one is, if you're an indie author, do not treat fellow indie authors as potential fans. They are your colleagues. Well... The thing about that is if you're on Bookstagram or Twitter, now X, or any other social media platform that is a replica of Twitter, most of the people who are going to be following you are going to be other authors. So when you're trying to promote your work, you're promoting it to other authors. And a lot of times they don't have any interest in what you're writing. But I have said it before and I will say it again. If you're an independent author and you're independently publishing your own work, you do not have any rules to follow because you are your own publisher, your own editor, your, your own writer. Why would you answer to other people in this so-called community? You don't. I remember a guy on Twitter saying, we need to start holding other indie authors accountable for the things that they write. And I block that guy because that is fucking toxic. We don't need people out there making rules for us if we're independent. And by the way, traditionally published authors, they have publishers making rules for them. But they can still give the publisher the middle finger about certain things. And they don't have to answer to anyone who's reading their work because... If people are still buying their work, it doesn't fucking matter. And Zev brought up the whole AI art thing. Apparently people on Twitter are rampant about that. Like, 
guys, you realize that at a certain point in the seventies that there were people who played actual instruments who were worried that the Mellotron was going to put them out of a job. Do you know that there are synthesizers that can play any single instrument in the world, but there are people who are still able to make a living playing actual instruments, correct? And there is a subreddit for people who defend AI art because most of the time it's either used as a reference point or if it is being used by an indie author for something, it's probably being used because they can't afford an actual artist for their book covers. Who the fuck cares if they're, if they have to get by, by charging 99 cents for their ebook and you expect them to pay maybe anywhere from 50 to 300 or more dollars for a book cover. No, this is independent publishing. We don't owe anyone else anything else. Okay. Now, when it comes to traditionally published authors, that's a whole different story because they can afford actual artists. But keep in mind, they're supporting artists who are already professionals. They're not going on Fiverr and paying someone to make their book cover. What do you think about stock photos? I mean, tons of people have used stock photos for their indie book art. My current book cover doesn't even have an, any photos or anything. It's just text over a gradient color scheme. Anyone can do that. I recently changed the cover art for Birch and for my novella collection, Staring at Nirvana. Birch was a stock photo. Um, I changed staring at Nirvana to a photo that I took in Chattanooga. I took the new birch cover art in my backyard with a, an hourglass that I actually own. That's DIY people. This is what that's about. I'm not looking for anyone to lift me up. DIY is about doing it yourself. And that's what I've been doing since I started. I'd never asked to be on author's lifts that resulted in zero book sales. I never asked to be part of a hashtag writing community. It was just something that was kind of foisted upon me when I joined Twitter and started trying to get people to read my stuff and learn more about indie publishing. And, you know, Zev was talking about how he doesn't like that Amazon categorizes his stuff because he happens to be a gay author that his stuff gets categorized with the bullshit fantasy stuff, often male-on-male fantasy romance bullshit that's written by straight women, which is problematic, but they never get called out on it. If you want to argue with that, first of all, fuck you. I'm not going to talk to you. Second of all, imagine if men were in this is happening sure but imagine if i wrote a, a lesbian fantasy romance bullshit thing uh it would not be very well received and my target audience wouldn't really be anyone because no one wants to read that i mean seriously there's a reason why i haven't read very many indie books on this podcast for one thing this podcast is about me if you haven't noticed, uh, 
I'm an author. I'm a musician. I'm here to promote my stuff. I'm not here to promote other people's stuff because that becomes a never ending circle jerk that nobody, but the people who are being promoted, pay attention to. I come on this podcast. I read other awesome authors who I admire. I read authors. I don't admire as much and I discuss their stuff and it's meant to be entertaining. It's meant to be funny at times. It's not terribly serious, but at the same time, I am someone who is qualified to read and talk about literature in some capacity because I studied it. That's another point of contention with a lot of people in that so-called community. The community that says you don't have to, to write to be a writer. You don't have to read to be a writer. You don't have to study writing or English in college. I have a bachelor's and master's degree in college. I'm qualified to read a David Sedaris essay and talk about it and relate to it. I'm not like these people on TikTok who read news articles and give their own spin on it, despite having never taken a journalism class in their entire fucking life. Anyway, rant over. This has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy writing. Go away.